thewellnesscouch.com, streaming wellness into your lives. The Real Food Real is a fresh and educational podcast dedicated to your health. We get real on current research, debunk food myths, and educate you on how to just eat real food. Your host, Steph Lowe, the natural nutritionist, is one of Australia's leading sports nutritionists, passionate about simplifying nutrition and addicted to coconut lattes, smoothies, and sweet potato. If you love the show, then please leave us a review on iTunes. Share the real food reel with your friends and continue to spread the real food love. Hi team and welcome back to The Real Food Real. Today on the show, we are again joined by Dr. Ken Sakaris. Now we had Ken on the show back in May 2016 where we discussed cholesterol, fats and the impact of LCHF on your pathology. This was one of our most popular interviews, which I'll definitely link to the show notes for those of you that haven't listened to Real Food Real 72. Um, but it's great to have Ken back on the show, and thanks again for your time, Ken. My pleasure, Steph. Um, I'm sort of glad that people are interested in their blood tests because um, it can be a little bit tricky to interpret. Yeah, I agree. And I think if we just, you know, touch on the topic from last time, we were discussing a lot about total cholesterol and how it's been misused in that space for a long time and um, tell me what you've seen in terms of the trend and how things are changing with general practitioners and how they're interpreting the blood lipid panel. Um, I suppose they're getting messages that I mean increasingly they're seeing LCHF type patients and you know wondering about um the measures of the cholesterol and HDL, they're seeing the HDL changes and wondering how that relates in the total total picture. But also in the cardiology world, um, the emphasis on cholesterol should have disappeared um, decades ago. Unfortunately, we've got sort of the echo of it in some of our regulations. So the prescribing guidelines for statins include total cholesterol levels and um and that shouldn't really be there and so the national the cardiology um community has moved certainly moved away from cholesterol um they've starting to move away from ldl cholesterol as well because ldl considered the bad form well it doesn't quite work out that way all the time and so now they're focusing on um calculations like the total cholesterol HDL ratio or the total cholesterol subtracted um, uh, from by the HDL or the, the non-HDL cholesterol. And so the GPs are getting those messages that there are other mes- me- uh, measures which are probably more accurate in, to, in predicting risk and also in predicting response to treatment. So, uh, you know, if they're not fully on board with the importance of those other measures, and my favourite is the total cholesterol HDL ratio, um, they um, are at least aware of the fact that cholesterol and LDL needs to be challenged. Yeah, I agree, and I think it's a really important time to see this transition after all these decades of, I guess, the incorrect communication, um, misinformation. So what do you think it's going to take to make that transition across 
you know, a, a larger percentage of practitioners? Well, I mean, it's a combination because people are going back over the old studies and reappraising them in terms of the modern measures or how they were conducted. And so that's that's leading to a, a reappraisal of the old stuff. But there's also a lot of new um, studies like all the low-carb dietary studies that are being performed showing their, um, I mean, they show a beneficial impact on blood tests, but, you know, over the next few years we'll show that prognostic improvement, hopefully show, you know, prove that prognostic improvement in health that um, these diets change the parameters and improve um, health and life. So I I think it's all coming. Unfortunately, both the, both the things, the studies that need to be conducted over years to show the improvement in health and reduction in mortality, they take years. And at the same time, what's been learnt over the last 10 or 20 years by doctors, it's sort of ingrained in that generation of doctors. It'll take almost as long, like ten, a decade, to reverse those, those things that they've lived with those ideas that they've lived with. So, you know, I, it's, sometimes it seems like communities changing faster than medical opinion, but really both of them take a while to change. Yeah, especially in this topic, I think, because it has been, for a lot of people, you know, 50 years of thinking that total cholesterol was the be-all and end-all, especially when it comes to cardiovascular disease risk prediction. Yeah, and one of the things that I see there is people often reinterpret the past, you know, with the benefit of hindsight and say, you know, well, why did these people believe these stupid ideas? The world was different back then. We didn't have the rate of diabetes and obesity that we have now. And so the ideas that we formed in the 40s, 50s, 60s, which were based around genetic disease as the major cause of of heart disease and cholesterol problems and so on. That was largely true back then. But now it's not genetic disease that causes, you know, the predominant factor. It's acquired disease, diet and lifestyle issues. And so, you know, we locked on to this idea of cholesterol and familial hypercholesterolemia and so on 30 or 40 years ago. And it was such a seems such a useful insight that we stuck to it rather than moving <laughs> with the way that our patients were changing. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, I think certainly now it's become a lot more prevalent, as you say, because of the types of diseases that we're saying, that we're seeing, sorry, and the connection obviously to cardiovascular disease. Yeah, in the late um, 80s when I started um, being involved in laboratories and I did supervise a specialist lipid laboratory. Um, we were in that transition. We'd sort of see this pattern of um, lipids on, on the specialised tests that we've got and think, well, this could be genetic disease, but it could also be diabetes or prediabetes. I wonder how we tell the difference. <laughs> so the question mark was being raised, uh, you know, 20 or 30 years ago. Um, but it's it's taken another 10 or 20 years before people start saying, no, there's a, there is a acquired form of lipid disease which is really important. We need to understand it more fully rather than looking at it through the, the um, 
eyes of genetic disease. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So let's talk more about blood tests in general, actually, because this is obviously your bread and butter. Um, Mm. I just wanted to sort of set the scene in terms of that, about preparing for a blood test and what we need to do to, um, you know, make sure that we are going to get the most accurate results. Yeah. Um, The big change here is that um, we used to say you had to fast um, to not eat any food um, for at least 10 to 12 hours. And the idea there was that um, after you have a meal, um, um, particularly a fat-containing meal, it can take 8 to 10 hours for the body to redistribute that meal back into the tissues, whether that be muscle or fat or liver. So because we didn't want to be testing what you ate last night but what your balance in um, cholesterol uh, metabolism is, we said that you have to be clear of the meal for at least 10 to 12 hours. We gave a bit of leeway. We used to say 8 to 15 hours um, and then we are not judging your last meal but judging your balance in cholesterol metabolism. Now, what's changed is that um, really that fasting um, had very little effect on cholesterol or HDL cholesterol or even LDL cholesterol. The changes in the Australian figures, say your your um, cholesterol was six. Um, after a fast, um, it might be six point one, or <laughs> well, five point nine. It changes by about point one, and um, and the same with HDL. It changes by about point one, and that change is so small. I'm not sad to admit it's a fact of life. Laboratories can't always pick up that change. Yeah. So the error in the laboratory is bigger than the effect of the diet. So, you know, people are like, well, this is a waste of time. Very inconvenient for patients, very inconvenient for labs to have patients um, having to come back to fast properly. So, um, so we've got rid of it. Now, the only thing that remains a little bit is that the thing that does change after a meal, particularly a fatty meal, is triglycerides. So they don't change by 0.1. They can change by 0.3 or 0.4 up to. So, but because we've changed our emphasis away from triglycerides and onto the calculations of total cholesterol and HDL, then, you know, we're saying, well, that even that is unimportant. There are subtle changes in triglycerides, but they're largely unimportant. Um, and in the in the LCHF world, you know, if you're pre-diabetic, your cholesterol's two, and if you're on an LCHF diet and your cholesterol's under one, that's a big difference, and it's not going to be something that's going to be confused by a meal. So, are you referring to triglycerides there? Yes, triglycerides. Yeah. Yes, so triglycerides of two. Yes, I mean that's a bad triglyceride level yes. that predicts the presence of you know, bad LDL, small dense LDL, whereas a triglyceride under one uh, is sort of the safe level that, you know, most people who've who've had success on the LSHF diet have triglycerides under one. Yes. There's no way you're going to confuse those two levels from a meal. 
yeah, I agree. I think interesting that you know for a long time, especially with the the um, you know the cholesterol heart health myth, there was so much emphasis put on food sources of cholesterol, which we now know are negligible in terms of their impact on our blood lipids. That's right. I mean, I ex- I used to explain when I was seeing patients every day um, because they'd worry about eggs and mm. you know why is my cholesterol not improving and um, you know is it the egg that I ate last week or <laughs> and as soon as you point out that the body's cholesterol is predominantly made by the body mm. made by the liver over eighty five percent of it is made by the body. So even if you cut out all of the cholesterol in your diet, um, your a cholesterol level in your body would only fall by 15%. Yeah. And not only that, but the body might even notice that you, there's no cholesterol coming into the diet and decide to make a bit more. <laughs> so, so it's completely a useless um, exercise in trying to eliminate cholesterol from the diet. Yes. Yes, especially when all the foods are you know very natural and the most nutrient dense options which you know if we use common sense obviously can't be killing us no i sort of consider eggs as one of the most wondrous foods Mm. if you deny them from your diet well then your diet's poorer because of it yeah absolutely interesting so i mean a lot of people are still being told they have to fast for these specific tests so are there any that you should still fast for um there's tests like insulin measuring insulin mm. levels and and um an insulin can increase you know markedly like it doesn't increase by 0.1 or something that your fasting insulin of 10 could become 100 after a meal so that makes a big difference mm. so um so they're really important um with I think we still say for the LDL sizing um, test where we can look at your LDL and see whether it's small or not, we still say that um, we'd rather you fasted because there the quality of the electrophoretogram depends on having low triglycerides. Triglycerides sort of make it harder for us to separate the LDL particles and so the lower the triglyceride, the better. So even even a point, you know, three or four shift in triglyceride might make the quality of our electrophoretogram better. So we still do say for that that you need to fast. Um, and blood with, glucose levels? Yeah, blood glucose is interesting. You certainly need to fast, um, but you can fast too much as well. Mm. So, so this concept with blood glucose is that, again, we say a 10 to 12-hour fast, but... Um, there it's not an issue of removing all the glucose from your diet from the bloodstream. That happens within an hour or two, as we know from a glucose tolerance test. The issue with the meal is that um, after a carbohydrate meal, you stock up glycogen, and therefore what we're measuring in the blood is how much glycogen you've still got. <laughs> And so, and that's not what we're interested. It's sort of still an echo of your last meal, how much glycogen in your body. So what we're trying to see is this balance between insulin and glucose, which only truly happens in the absence of glycogen after 10 or 12 hours. So, and the danger in that 
Um, and it is a danger in LCHF as well because if you don't have um, if you don't have carbs for more than fifteen hours, um, then your glucose level will be much lower than you'd expect because you're starting to shift into sort of ketogenic state. So we don't, um, you know, there the danger is even more that people might have fasted too long and people have done studies to show that if you fast for 15 hours rather than 10 to 12 hours, we'll miss 60% of diabetes because everyone's glucose level is low by 15 hours. Almost everyone's level is low by 15 hours. So... So with glucose, it's still an issue with fasting glucose that you do need to fast. But probably the important thing to say is that most endocrinologists do not want you measuring fasting glucose or measuring fasting glucose or glucose tolerance tests to diagnose uh, diabetes anymore. They want to use the hemoglobin A1c, which is that form of hemoglobin, the redness in the blood that's carried in the red blood cells. Um, it sort of glucose can stick to hemoglobin and that's what forms hemoglobin A1c. And so the amount of glucose stuck to your hemoglobin reflects your glucose levels. And it doesn't reflect your glucose levels after the last meal or at the moment. It reflects your glucose levels over the life of that red blood cell, which is three months. Mm. So it's such a good measure. And um, you know, I'd be happy if we didn't measure blood glucoses other than after meals when you're trying, in a diabetic, when you're trying to see what impact the meal had. Um, for diagnosis and for monitoring diabetes, um, the haemoglobin A1c is such a good test. I agree. I obviously think it's the gold standard, but I feel like a lot of doctors are quite reluctant. You know, they might look at someone's blood glucose level and say it is 49 they often will not uh, refer out for a HbA1c because they believe that person's healthy. Yeah, and um, I mean there is a balance. It's not just glucose levels that doctors should be looking at, but you know the patient's weight and lifestyle and everything. Mm. So, and and that's what the um, the risk scores that have been developed by the Diabetes Foundation, the OSD risk. You can look it up. AUSD risk. Those scores, and they take into account much more than glucose levels. They take into account the whole patient, and 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 so the current guidelines are: if the OSD risk score raises the possibility of diabetes, then you should do a hemoglobin A one C. Okay. Well, that that's good to know, and that, well, hopefully that that is obviously the standard that general practitioners are using. Yeah. Um, I have to admit what you're saying, Steph, is that I think that because 60, well over 60% of Australia is overweight or obese, because diabetes and heart disease is such an important issue in Australia, I, even if you didn't qualify, I mean, a haemoglobin A1C test only cost, you know, 15 or $20. If the doctor won't do it or if the government won't pay for it, I think it's well worth paying $20 (laughs) to get the best test to judge whether you're likely to become a diabetic. Mm. Yeah, I completely agree. Um, For some people, I I think what the limiting factor is is, is that the doctor 
will convince them that it's not necessary. Yes. Mm. Yeah, and the and one of the, one probably the biggest barrier at the moment to the full appreciation of hemoglobin A1C is that um, in the Australian units, the common Australian units, there's a couple of different units used for um, hemoglobin A1C: millimole per mole, which is a European unit, if you like, which the world said they try to move to, but it's. America gave up on that transition and the percentage which we've had for 30 years. And the um, so Australia still predominantly looks at the percentage and in percentage terms, a haemoglobin A1C of 6.5%, so 6.5% of your haemoglobin has glucose stuck to it. Um, if it's over 6.5%, you have diabetes. End of story. Um, it can reverse it, by the way. <laughs> But anyway, 6.5 and above is diabetes. And then the question is, well, what's healthy? Because there's this pre-diabetic state. And in the US and in New Zealand, they've defined that healthy point as a haemoglobin A1C of around 5.6%. So up to 5.6, you're healthy. 5.7 to 6.4, you're pre-diabetic. And 6.5 and above, you're diabetic. But in Australia, we say 6.5 and above is diabetic, and below that, we're not really sure, which is stupid because we are sure. We know that haemoglobin A1Cs of 6% are harmful. So um, in our laboratory, we do report a haemoglobin A1C up to 5.6% as normal, and we can't call technically 5.7 to 6.4 as pre-diabetes because Australia hasn't made that decision yet but we can say that it's not normal which for all intents and purposes means that it's diabetes pre-diabetes <laughs> so and and that's really important I think for for people you know in LCHF where the A1C may come down to 5.2 percent you you really know that you're well away from that risk point but for those patients who you know, are thinking about a diet and they get a haemoglobin A1C of 6.1%, which is not diabetic, but it's closer to diabetes and normality. And so that should be sort of an alarm to try to do something quickly, whereas a haemoglobin A1C of 5.7%, which is just outside the diabetic range, might, might mean we'll try a few different diets and see how it goes and we'll keep a monitor on it and make sure you're not heading for diabetes. But, you know, it's like a you know that range of 5.7 to 6.4 is, you know, the, the it shows the importance of where you are on the, on the potential journey to diabetes and how aggressively you should be managing it. Yeah, I agree. And certainly, you know, it is a really small reference range. So for some people, it can take a little bit of wrapping their head around to appreciate that something like 5.3 is healthy, but, you know, 5.7 is starting to yes. trend in the wrong direction. Yeah. And look, and the reason why it's it's become a useful test is because even 10 years ago, we couldn't, laboratories couldn't confidently tell the difference between 5.3 and 5.7. And so it wasn't ready to be used in such a fine-tuned way. But today, the, the tests have got an error of 
one or two percent, you know, not one or two percent of one or two percent of six. So, you know, when we measure six, most of the time it's going to be six, and occasionally it'll be one percent away from six or, you know, 5.9. So, we're very good at measuring it consistently now. And that's what's made it so reliable an indicator of the journey from health to diabetes. Yeah. Yeah, and I wonder if that's only been a sort of a more of a recent discovery. I wonder if that's a limiting factor with doctors that were trained some time ago. It is. It's, mm. Yeah, because it's considered a test of diabetes and the health in, in um, the, the severity of diabetes. And people haven't been used to using it as as a test of pre-diabetes. And we haven't even condoned it in Australia. I mean, it's really, you know, we're, we're really about five years behind the times. And, yeah. um, and sometimes I wonder, um, because if you did set the bar as pre-diabetes of, uh, at starting at 5.7%, be a significant part of Australia, like maybe twenty to twenty percent or more, who have prediabetes. Now we're struggling with the idea that ten percent of Australians have diabetes. If we brought double that and say that twenty percent or more have prediabetes, that's uncovering a huge health problem. And and frankly, people are worried whether they, we've got the money to afford addressing that health problem. Hmm. I mean, the biggest barrier is again that the dietary information is being has been incorrect. I mean, it doesn't cost any money to advise a patient LCHF. Yes. Yeah, I do. Look, I, sometimes I do wonder um, about what our you know, supermarkets or what our markets would look like if the whole world was on LCHF. <laughs> that would be it's, amazing. It's mine. It, <sighs> it's really, um, it would change the face of food. Mm. And, and that will take a while. I mean, we can't, you know, change our farms from, you know, producing uh, wheat and sugar and, and all those things to producing healthy things other than over a decade or more. Mm. So, you know, that's another reason why I think that, unfortunately, the combination of people's attitudes, the inertia of the um, conservative medical establishment and the what would be required to change diets that have been developed over the last three decades, um, it's going to take time. And the sad thing is that, you know, those who are informed get benefit today and those who uh, aren't well informed, which often are the, you know, poorly educated and lower socioeconomic, they're going to suffer again. Mm. Yeah, it's quite tragic, really. Yeah. So what blood tests are impacted by diet? Any others? Um, probably the other area where um, we really see the whole issue of prediabetes and um, lipids is the liver tests. 
and um, liver function tests, which are a misnomer because they're really liver damage tests, um, are one of the most common tests uh, used by doctors. They often use it because they may be interested in liver disease, you know, due to alcohol or drugs or viruses like hepatitis B and C. Um, they're often done because people are on medications that can harm the liver. So they're very common tests. And the most common abnormality of liver function tests is the fatty liver, the liver that's been really choked by sugar and carbs um, being converted to fat in the liver. And, and when you can't move that liver, <laughs> that, sorry, that fat out of the liver, it accumulates and starts to damage the liver. And so that you move from a fatty liver to a form of hepatitis, steato, which means fat, steatohepatitis. So, um, and we see that as changes in the liver function test, particularly in a test called the ALT. So ALT has got an L in it. It's different to ALP, which is also in the liver function test, but the ALT or alanine transaminase is the best test of fatty liver. And it's elevated. Now, we used to say it was only elevated in 2.5% of people because in the old days, what we used to do is grab 100 Australians, measure their liver enzyme levels, including ALT, and say, well, the worst 2.5%, they must be sick, and the other 97.5% were okay. And what had happened over the last 20 years is that labs had to keep increasing their limit for ALT because... As Australia was getting fatter and there was more fatty liver, we were making ALTs seem normal by, by just shifting that cutoff up from the cutoff um, used to be about 40 and went up to 50 and people were pushing for 60 and 70. And then we said, just hold on a minute. This level may not be healthy. It's associated with obesity and associated with weight and associated with the risk of diabetes. Shouldn't we be looking at healthy people with normal BMIs and using them to set the reference interval. And since we've done that, the cutoffs have fallen way back, back to 40, as they were before the obesity epidemic. So for around 40 for men and 30 for women. And when we use that cutoff, guess what? 20 to 30% of Australians have a fatty liver. And, and that and people, you know, just say, oh, well, it's a fatty liver, don't, you know, everyone's got one. It's maybe associated with diabetes. So have a look at the glucose and the cholesterol and just, but we shouldn't be ignoring fatty liver because fatty liver um, is a, can become hepatitis. It can um, damage the liver, it can cause fibrosis and scarring. So we don't want to see people with fatty liver for years on end because it, can cause chronic liver disease so people are starting to focus on fatty liver and um, in the in the UK there's a guideline where they have got you know most of the liver experts in the world are sort of concentrated in particular hospitals in London they've been saying that GPS must look for fatty liver and must start to treat it and the way you treat fatty liver is the same way as you treat obesity and heart disease and diabetes and it's predominantly by diet and lifestyle 
But um, so that ALT level is important. Now, the only little clue that I'll I'll tell people people it's hard to know who's going to progress to the fibrosis and scarring and all that nasty stuff in the liver but there's a big clue in the liver function test so the alt tells you there's fat accumulating in the liver and there's another test which sounds very similar to it and it's almost always recorded with the alt called the ast and the ast is removed is removed from the circulation very quickly and so if the AST is also elevated, you know that there's something going on which is constantly happening at a significant rate. So if you've also got a raised AST as well as an ALT, then you should be much more active in addressing the fatty liver issue. A bit like the A1C of you know 6 versus 5.7. The, once the AST is also elevated, then you shouldn't just be watching ALT levels. You should be doing something to reverse that process. And as you would know, Steph, fatty liver, and it's a bit like fat adaption, you can get rid of it in one or two weeks. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, I mean, that's what the, you know, a lot of detox diets and everything. Yes, you can change the liver. It's a, one of the most highly active organs in the body. It can change within a week or two, both for good and for bad. I mean, you can develop a fatty liver in one or two weeks, as um, Damon showed in the sugar film. Absolutely. Yeah. Fascinating. That, yeah, so the fatty liver is probably the next most important area of blood tests. Um, probably an area where blokes worry about uh, hormone levels you know like god is my obesity you know my weight problem and my diabetes affecting my testosterone level because um you know i'll be less of a man or so and then i might have to do something <laughs> <laughs> but um and it is you'll see lots of um literature saying that you know diet and diabetes affects testosterone levels well that's not quite true what it affects is the hormone that binds testosterone in the blood or sex hormone binding globulin. And so in diabetes, when the insulin levels are high in insulin resistance, the sex hormone binding globulin falls. And because there's less binding protein, it looks like testosterone falls. And so people think, oh, you know, pre-diabetes and diabetes drops your testosterone level. Well, not technically. What it does, it drops the binding protein for testosterone. And, um, I mean, in two minds for that. One, it would be good if most, if more blokes took their health seriously. And yeah. If the, if the um, illusion that their testosterone levels are falling motivates them, well, that's probably a good thing. But scientifically, it's not accurate. Um, I'm not sure what are the blood tests. Um, they're the main ones that people are concerned with. Um, look, it's safe to say that there is no blood test that's not affected by obesity and fatty liver. Mm. I mean, when you look at polycystic ovary syndrome, you know, the, all of the hormones in women fertility are affected by obesity. When you look at tests for kidney function, we know that kidney function is worsened in people who are overweight and hypertensive um, 
Now, so there's, well, I mean, the test for heart disease as well, you know, the, heart, the damage to the heart, like troponin, they're affected by um, your risk of heart disease, which is related to fat and lipids. And so it's, I, I would say you should assume that every test is potentially affected by obesity. And, um, and it's a problem for lads because all these tests that used to be for, um, say, liver disease, suddenly they're tests for obesity and prediabetes. Mm. So it's as if all of our tests are being hijacked and alarming us that there's a problem with obesity and prediabetes and it's getting worse and worse because we're not addressing the problem. Yeah. <laughs> what are your thoughts on the current reference ranges? For um, for the cholesterol tests? Yeah, or even for some of the some of the other tests you mentioned like um, ALT and things like that sure. that maybe haven't been adjusted recently. Yes. Now, um, it's been a I mean it's been an interest of mine for 20 or 30 years. Mm. I've just been re-elected to the um, International Federation of Clinical Chemistry's Committee on Reference Intervals. So it's a huge area and a hugely important area as you're implying. Mm. And in Australia, um, the government's actually sponsored um, the scientific associations to develop what should be the common reference intervals that all laboratories should use. And, um, you know, and the societies that I've been in have developed um, the limits that all laboratories should use. Strangely enough, um, every laboratory director is free to choose their own limits. And so, you know, if you've got a laboratory director who in the cholesterol realm is stuck 20 or 30 years ago, um, they're free to put whatever they want. And when the inspectors come around and ask him, um, why do you not use the interval that everyone else uses, he can say, well, it's not my belief, and that's they can't do anything about it. Now, we're trying to change those accreditation laws to say that um, if you're using something different to everyone else, you must be able to document and show the evidence for why you're using something else. And it may be important. So, you know, people that are testing predominantly children um, may need, you know, quite different reference intervals or clinical decision limits. People who test only one portion of the community may have to have this sort of racial adjustment for their reference intervals. So there may be some valid reasons, but very, very rarely. Mm. And so we're really pushing for those guidelines to say that, um, put more onus on laboratories to follow the recommendations um, rather than having this freedom based on the often called the God-given right of doctors. So (laughs) trying to take that away and replace it with, you know, what most people think. And, And really with the ALT level, you know, the recommendations are that labs should be using 40 and 30, but you'll find labs around the country using 50 and 60. Um, even with the cholesterol, you find different cut-offs in different labs for total cholesterol, for LDL. We're trying to tidy that up, but we're going to need 
to use a stick. <laughs> <laughs> and what about thyroid? That's one of the worst, TSH, the yeah, reference no, thyroid, range. Thyroid, whereas with hemoglobin A1C, I've said we've reduced the variation between labs, with thyroids there can be a 30% difference from one lab to another in the TSH, which mm. is the most important test, a thyroid-stimulating hormone test. So um, until we get the assays the same, labs should have different cutoffs because mm-hmm. their methods are different. So, but there's a big international effort to try to harmonise, in the terminology, harmonise the methods so they're giving similar results. And uh, that's about a year or two away for thyroid function tests. But for haemoglobin, A1C, cholesterol, um, glucose, all laboratories should be giving the same result. And so that is not a reason for them having different cutoffs. Yeah. Very interesting times, though. I think you've got a big job ahead of you to try and create a bit more regulation across the board. Yeah. Well, it's a bit a bit like all the dietary stuff. The, the science is the simple part. The politics is the hard part. Yeah. <laughs> which is really unfortunate that it can be that simple, but there's so many other factors getting in the way. Yes. Yeah. But, it, but again, you know, for those people who want to stay informed mm. by, you know, listening to shows that look at the leading edge like yours, um, they'll be in a privileged position. Yes. Just a couple of final questions. I just wanted to understand more about... Um, the reliability of blood tests. Have you got any examples for us where maybe they are considered unreliable? Yes. Um, nothing's perfect mm-hmm. in the world, including blood tests. And so um, things like um, if we get away from the issue of fasting and non-fasting, there are other things like dehydration, which will cause everything in the blood to seem a bit higher. Mm. If you're dehydrated, everything's concentrated. Like you, when you go to the toilet, the urine's really dark. Well, everything in your body's sort of dark. And and so when we take blood samples from dehydrated people, it's misleading. And um, and what I used to find in the lipid clinic is the patients who were most anxious about their cholesterol level used to say, well, I'm not only going to fast for 10 hours. I'm going to fast for 15 or hours or more, and I'm not even going to drink water. And they come in dehydrated, and guess what? Their cholesterol gets higher and higher every time they come in more and more dehydrated. <laughs> so, so there are things that patients can do to themselves. Um, if you're taking high levels of vitamin C, some people take you know way more than they need, like hundred thousand times more than you need. That will affect our blood tests because it's an antioxidant, and we use oxidation reactions in our laboratories. So it will retard that. And guess what? You know, the tests which one of some of the first tests to go when you're taking massive amounts of vitamin C are the cholesterol and HDL tests and the glucose tests. They'll all be lower because you've got an antioxidant preventing our reactions from showing how much cholesterol and glucose are there. How much vitamin C are we talking? These are the mega doses. Mm. Um, I'm not sure the units, but, you know, the Pauling, Pauling type you know, a thousand times your daily requirement right. doses. Mm. Or, or some people, you know, I don't know why, but some people go to doctors who give them a vitamin C infusion and then do some blood tests immediately afterwards and wonder why all the tests are bizarre. Well, it's because our tests do not cope with high levels of foreign substances in them. 
And there are other things too. Another vitamin more recently that's causing problems is biotin. Biotin has um, been found to be useful, potentially useful in multiple sclerosis. So people are taking massive doses of biotin, which may be helping their multiple sclerosis, but it's driving labs crazy because our, our results just go haywire. And some of our assays use the biotin proteins to, you know, to work. And so if you throw in a whole lot of biotin, they just fall apart. So there are a lot, I mean, that's from the pre-analytical state, which is the collection of the blood sample. In Australia, you know, if we collect blood samples on in the heat of summer and take more than a few hours to get them to the lab, they'll be unreliable. Um, in the laboratories, they tend to be reliable um, because um, we've learnt all the problems we try to avoid them our assays you know we try to make robust but as i said before our assays are not perfect so you know the hemoglobin a1c of six could repeat as 5.9 a insulin level of 100 could repeat as 90 in the laboratory this is what's called the measurement uncertainty in the laboratory we can't you know we can't measure things as precisely as some people think we can and so people can overinterpret results and I feel very sad for patients who say, um, you know, my cholesterol was 6. It's increased to 6.1. Um, am I going to die? Well, labs can't even tell the difference between 6 and 6.1. So, you know, that's a, a form of unreliability. So, so there's these idiosyncratic factors which cause, cause massive changes in the blood test. There are other factors which cause small changes which are... Yeah, impact on interpretation. Um, I suppose the bottom line in all that is because no test is 100% reliable, if there's something that doesn't add up in the blood test, you should repeat it. Oh, I and, completely agree. And ideally even repeat it in a different laboratory and a laboratory that uses an assay that's not affected by biotin or, you know, the other thing that you'll hear about sometimes is people, when we're using antibodies in assays, we use, um, you know, the immune system of animals to identify foreign things, so the antibody um, assays. Um, so if we generate an antibody using a mouse system, that's not killing mice, it's sort of we've taken cells out of them and learned, taught those cells how to live forever and make antibodies we can use in assays so um so when we use those antibodies in our assays some people might have seen that mouse protein during their life and have antibodies towards it well these heterophilic antibodies because they're directed against something other than human interests um, and those heterophilic antibodies can interfere with the assays so every immunoassay is potentially affected by heterophilic antibodies. We use um, certain tricks to try to reduce that, but, you know, really there's no test that's 100% reliable. So as you say, Steve, if, if it doesn't add up, repeat it. One, one of the things I tell the medical students is that when you go before the coroner and he said, what did you think of that blood test? And you say to the coroner, um, well, I didn't really believe it, but I treated the patient anyway. That's not a valid thing. 
if you didn't believe it, you should repeat it. Yeah, I think that's a really, really important part because people, you know, again, with that whole sort of way society views doctors, I think that there can be then a lot of fear that comes back through certain results Um, and then, you know, immediate action taken when I think, you know, definitely before you do anything too drastic, double check. And, like, most of the time there's certainly the um, possibility of an anomaly. Yeah. Look, I mean, generally tests are over 99% reliable, Mm. but you don't want to be in that 1% who goes off on a wild goose chase. Yeah, exactly. And then lastly, um, how often should blood tests be repeated in your mind? Um, It varies a bit on the blood test. Um, Some things like, say, the fatty liver can improve in a couple of weeks. So if you want to just reassure yourself that you reversed it, um, you could repeat it very quickly. Other things take months to change, like hemoglobin A1C, because it reflects the lifetime of the red cell, which is three months. It's not really going to change much until three months' time when all the you've changed things and all those new cells will show what the impact of the change has been. Um, other tests, um, at the moment there's a limitation on vitamin B12 repeats because the concept is that if you've got a vitamin B12, most people have enough of a store for a year or more. And so the concept is that if you've got a healthy B12 level, well, you don't need to check it again for a year because it's unlikely to plummet in a few months. Um, so it varies from test to test. How, But if you had to summarise that, it's, um, you know, what as quickly as things change, that's how often you should check it. So if things take months to change or months or years to change, then that's how often you should do it. And we know that diets in general can take weeks to months to have an effect and therefore you shouldn't really be repeating them more often because you'll be misleading yourself. That day-to-day variation is what you're going to be seeing rather than the impact of your diet. And and because people misinterpret that day-to-day level like, Six has gone to 6.1, woe is me. You know, it's best to wait until you're sure there's been enough time for a significant change and then you don't cause that sort of um, confusion over minor changes which may or may not be significant. Yeah, certainly day-to-day variation. So if someone was to start LCHF, do you think that they should test again in three months or longer? Um, I think in three months, but it, it's a bit like that haemoglobin A1C. If, if I was on LCHF and, and I was bordering on diabetes, so, so my A1C was 6.4, is only a, a small step away from diabetes, I'd want to know very quickly that I'm having success. Yeah. And so I probably would be looking to test it as soon as possible, which would be in three months' time. Um, whereas if my A1C level was 5.7%, so, you know, I'm almost normal but, you know, just slightly at risk, then um, I'd want to check it in longer than three months, maybe six months or a year because, um, you know, my 
you know, your weight and your well-being will be a, a better indicator of your success of your diet than whether your A1Cs drop from 5.7 to 5.6. So um, I'm sorry I can't be more uh, didactic, but um, it, everything depends on more than just um, what the blood tests are. That's the whole, the whole picture of the patient. And really, um, there is, even though the government may not be prepared to pay for B12 more than once a year, total B12 more than once a year, if a patient's really anxious about B12 levels because they've had a low B12 level, they worried about their parents that died of dementia, and they want to make sure that the B12 that they've taken has actually corrected their B12 deficiency, you know, when it probably has. Um, again, I think it's well worth moving away from the government restrictions and say, well, I'll pay the $20 for a B12 level because to me that reassurance is really important. Um, so, yeah, unfortunately, you know, the health system is being burdened by heart disease and pre-diabetes and diabetes and cancer and everything and and we can't afford to do everything we'd ideally like to do but it doesn't it shouldn't restrict people from saying um well i'd like to know that result for my own peace of mind and i'm happy to pay a little bit for it yeah i think that's a good place to start if you know you are working with a doctor that maybe is giving you these parameters like you can only get certain tests per year and whatever that might be. Um, so I, I have clients that work with obviously very different um, doctors and everyone's experience is so, so different that um, it really depends on who you see. It's good to have, you know, to have that knowledge that you can request and if, you, like you say, if you're happy to pay, then do that for peace of mind but also to make sure that the intervention is working because I think... You know, if you waited a year and nothing had changed, well, then you'd be a year behind. Yeah. Now, I'm, I may be biased here because I work for a, a big private company, Sonic Healthcare, but um, I can tell you, I will tell you that the Australian health system, particularly in pathology, is one of the most efficient and cost-effective in the world. So you will never get such quality results at such a cheap price anywhere in the world. If anyone's tried to send blood tests to America and pay for those tests, they'll know how expensive blood tests are overseas. In Australia, they're a bargain. <laughs> and so you shouldn't really feel like you're... Uh, you know, you're wasting your money by spending $20 or even $100 on LDL size because it's a bargain compared to what they cost overseas. Yeah, I know, and much, much easier as well. It's a bit of a mission in the States to to even, you know, be able to get the right tests. Yeah, look, the only thing that I will say about the States is that in some states, like in Arizona, they passed a law to say that if a patient wants to have a test done, and pay for it out of their own pocket, you're not allowed to refuse them. So that's I mean, that's quite a, a different position to what we have here where, you know, you'll ask to get a test done and the doctor will say, well, you can't, and you say, I'll pay for it myself, and it says, well, I, I still won't order it. Mm. 
Yeah, interesting times, as I said. But it's always great to chat with you on this topic and really looking forward to seeing the changes that I think are certainly happening with that momentum now. But thanks so much for joining us again on the show, Ken. It was great to have you on. Lovely. Thanks, Deb. This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst the Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Wellness Couch podcasts.